we were coming back to a different environment. I bumped into some of my old friends in the, in the city one day and they said, come to dinner on Tuesday. And I, I said, no thanks. And I thought, why did you say that? You're not doing anything. I didn't expect to be there the next day. Even though I was back in Australia, but my mind was still attuned to the fact that you may not be here tomorrow. Because I'd seen a lot of my comrades go. This, this experience of talking with you is something I never imagined. I have never talked to my friends like this. From Uniting, this is My Life at War, a six-part series featuring first-hand experiences of the everyday Australians who served in World War II. We spent the last year capturing these stories because we believe they need to be told. Each week, hear from some of our last remaining veterans and war historian David Wilson as we follow their journey through World War II. I'm Jefferson Spratt. And I'm Lee Taylor. Part 6. Life After War. This day marks the unconditional surrender of the complete Japanese Second Army to General Sir Thomas Blamey, Commander-in-Chief of the Australian Military Forces and the Allied Land Forces in the Southwest Pacific area. The Japanese Navy has been destroyed. The Japanese Air Force has been driven from the sky. The Japanese armies have been defeated everywhere. The Emperor of Japan has yielded to the Allied forces and an instrument of total surrender has been signed in his name. Our veterans told us in episode one that they will never forget the announcement that Australia is at war. Since then, they've shared feelings of fear and excitement. They've told us stories of loss and mateship and overcoming unthinkable challenges. Now, the war is over. But this comes with a new challenge. Who is the soldier after the war? We're excited to think that no more war, because it wasn't very pleasant. Yeah, I was relieved that the war was over. Too right. When the war ended, I was back in Sydney at headquarters. I was in Brisbane, and uh, I was in charge of outfitting SE rescue boats. I arrived back in Adelaide on VJ Day. Can you imagine that? And of course, we all went to the city and joined the crowds and. It's all great happiness. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. And his soldiers marching on. I was at Concord still, but I was in the city that day with one of my friends from the army. And then we heard, it's over. And everybody started screaming and dancing and... So we joined in and we'd, we screamed and danced so long I didn't have a voice left. Everybody was screaming, the war's over. Everybody was, very, was so happy they were prepared to hug anybody. <laughs> yes, everybody felt more optimistic, I think. Felt more excited about life. I was on guard the night I got the message it was over. This is Raymond Aspelt, our craftsman from the Army's 110th Brigade workshops. Mate come up and said, you know, 
The war's finished. I said, don't be bloody silly. I wasn't expecting it. It just come out of the blue, you know. You didn't know when you were getting home. They brought in what they call the point system, and that worked out that you doubled your age of enlistment. So 18, you, you were right on the bottom. They were the last to come home. The challenge for the government was to demobilise more than half a million personnel. These had to be brought home and discharged. This is war historian David Wilson. Now, the points system was to allow the government to trickle feed those people who'd been discharged back into civilian life. The points system itself was quite convoluted and it was based on several criteria, such as your age on enlistment, how many months you'd served and how many children you might have. And, of course, the more points you had, the faster you were demobilised. Another factor was your occupation and whether you had critical skills that could be used to reboot the economy. This could be used to prioritise you in the demobilisation process. This was called occupational release. Raymond was one of those soldiers with skills that were needed urgently back in Australia. He would be going home. From the islands thousands of miles away, from the battlefields and prison camps, from beachheads and jungles, the troops sailed home. Three more days, two more, one. When the war finished, they wanted to get the transport moving in Sydney. Being in the motor trade, my firm applied for me to come home. From boat after boat that arrived, officers and men disembarked. For years, there'd been a team living and fighting together as one. Now each of them would go his own way, live his own life in peace. When the war finished, they didn't leave us in units. They split us all up. Uh, we never come home as a unit, which was a pity because we'd been together all that time. Anyway. There was Sydney. Every transport that arrived was greeted at the wharf by a cheering crowd. There was Mum. Daddy, here I am. Yeah, my dad come down and he grabbed all of me and had tears in his eyes. It was a good feeling. And Dad wasn't that sort of bloke. He was standoffish, but he, he melted, you know. Good to remember. We've heard all these stories from the point of view of our veterans, but we forget about their loved ones and how it was for them. They were left behind, not knowing if or when their child would come home. Mum and I, we both cried at each other. And she was so pleased to see me. So pleased. This is Tex, our flight lieutenant who fought alongside the US in the Pacific. My love for my mother was so great that we both cried together, hugged each other, and uh, we had neighbours came in and hugged me and kissed me and said of how pleased they were that I've survived the war. The element was so great that, uh, and so loving to see my family again and my neighbours that I knew. Um, it was uh, an event that uh, it's very hard to describe. It was just one plain word, love for each other, you know, and uh, that's what was happening. It was uh, an occasion that a man would never forget. 
Bruce Robertson, our 100-year-old wireless operator, also told us about the special bond he had with his mother in episode one. Remember, she was a single parent raising Bruce and his three siblings. Unfortunately, there will be no reunion. It played on my mother's mind. She wasn't well. When I was in New Guinea, she had a massive stroke and uh, she was taken to hospital. She wrote me a letter in pencil, about four or five pages to say where she was and what had happened and so on. And um, she said, I've got to uh, stop now. I'm, I can only see out of one eye, the other eye's blind with this massive stroke. She died the next day when I was in New Guinea. I couldn't get back from there, of course. We were all bonded together. I, I had left her, but I hadn't left her. And letters, writing and so on like that. Mm. There was always a connection, wasn't mm. there? Mm. Oh, yes, yeah. Celebrations continued as servicemen and women arrived home to their families. But there were many soldiers who never dreamed the day would ever come. More than 30,000 Australians became prisoners of war during World War II. Douglas Sando, our flight officer from country South Australia, would help bring them home. Terrible bloody thing. Terrible thing. And that's one of the most important things of the whole affair that I ever witnessed. And it's not that I'm sorry to have to talk about it again, but I like to talk about it again so people know what did happen or really happened. War had ended. And they said, because we had the big aircraft and they took out all the bombs and rubbish, I had to cut the crew down to about five. We only needed five to help the men and everything. And these poor devils were all damaged and all this sort of thing that goes with it. We were flying very big days then. We were flying from up in the north there right through to the capital city of Australia to drop whichever one supply. Now, we would fly all day. It was a trip of about, I think, 15, 20 hours. And we would do that for about two or three weeks. Awful job. So, Doug, what did it mean to you to be able to bring these Australian soldiers back? Oh, wonderful. I thought, goodness me, I'm not saying I'm enjoying it. I didn't enjoy it. It's one of the things I said to myself, I hate this because of the thing that it's done to my Australians, really. That's the only the way I looked at it. During our conversations with Doug, he describes his crew as being like a family. He says the friendships he made during the war lasted until the end. But even then, Doug says he was asked to perform one last duty. If a crew member died in service, or even after the war, Doug was often asked by their family to conduct the funeral. And you'd say, oh, I'll do your funeral. I'd love to do your funeral. You know, it's just give me a, something I can just say goodbye to you. and You can't help what's happened, and that's life. And, so forth. I did it whenever they asked me. Those early days returning from war would leave our veterans contemplating the challenges ahead. For Tex, it was the loss of friendships. Well, it was a loss of a lot of friends that really the fellows that were killed, I felt sad about them, about their families, about their children. We fought and we survived. We lost a lot of good mates. For Robert Marshall, our flying officer who served in Europe, his challenge would be adjusting to normal life again. 
we were coming back to a different environment. I bumped into some of my old friends in the, in the city one day and they said, come to dinner on Tuesday. And I, I said, no, thanks. And I thought, why did you say that? You're not doing anything. You know, life was going on for them, but for me, it, it wasn't part of my expectation. I didn't expect to be there the next day. Even though I was back in Australia, my mind was still attuned to the fact that you may not be here tomorrow. Because I'd seen a lot of my comrades go. It was very worrying. Because, you see, I had no qualifications. I had a very small education. I only had seven years of primary education. That was no qualification for anything. I worried about what sort of work would I do or would I be able to do. David, what support was given to our return to service men and women? Well, you were given a choice. You could either keep serving or you could return to civilian life. And the absolute majority of returned service people went back to civilian life. Now, general demobilisation began on the 1st of October 1945, and the government had already set up dispersal centres in each capital city. Now, at these dispersal centres, people who'd been discharged were given advice on employment, land settlement, training opportunities, and any other benefits that the government was going to give to them. Also, legislation existed where men and women who'd been employed before the war had to have their old jobs offered back to them by their employers. The government decreed that they had to take you back after the war. And I went back to where I was working as an office person. And I thought, I couldn't work here again, enclosed in an office. And then when I decided to become a podiatrist, I met some people who became lifelong friends. Great, jolly, happy times for a couple of years before I came to live in Sydney. And those two years were the happiest years of my life, really. Falling in love and all that sort of thing. During our conversations, many of our veterans spoke about the propaganda that both sides were exposed to and what they were told to think about the enemy. So what do they think now? Uh, I've been asked that question. No matter what it was in war, you are trying to kill someone. No matter what service you're in. That's what you're there for. No matter what part of the thing you're in, you're assisting the enemy to be killed. This is Bruce Robertson, our 100-year-old wireless operator. This is what it is, one, one army against another army. And that's ridiculous, really. When you look at it now, it's stupidity. The Japanese people today don't know about any of those things. Today, they're our best friends. And here we travel to Japan. We look at the lovely things and the lovely people and so on and so on. How could they be the people we fought against? And I've come to the conclusion that you love your enemies now. You've got to live with them afterwards, which you do. It's, um, it's been quite a journey from that abruptness of terribleness to a life of wife and family and children of wonderful things. And gradually the wartime thing wore off. It's a terrible thing, war. 
And the thing is, you've got to go to a Bible teaching where Jesus said, love your enemies. That's pretty tough. But you've got to bring yourself to do that later on. And things have softened that way. You can get over it. You can love your enemies. Throughout all of our conversations we had with these veterans, there was one thing that stood out, just how humble each of them were. They seemed to downplay their contribution and service, yet they were quick to praise their fellow servicemen and women. Many of these stories have never been told because for our veterans, they were just doing their duty. I've never ever disclosed that story that I gave you to any person before. I'm so proud that my story will be told. This experience of talking with you is something I never imagined. I have never talked to my friends like this. You know, I don't see that they could be interested. As a military historian, I think it's not only just about battles, but it's actually more about a person's contribution to their country. And I think it's so important that these individual stories are captured for future generations. Otherwise, they'll be lost. A year ago, we set out to record these veterans so that we will remember their sacrifices and never forget what they did. We wanted to tell the first-hand experiences of the ordinary Australians who served in World War II. What we found were 11 extraordinary Australians. Alan Tex Alcock, Douglas Sando, Marsha Halliday, Jean Turnbull, Raymond Aspelt, James Grice, Mervyn Najar, Lester Warburton, Robert Marshall, Colin Watigo, and Bruce Robertson. Well, I think it changed my life. I got to places I probably wouldn't have been going normally. It made me independent. It made me accept discipline and uh, helped me to uh, just get along with people. It may have made me a bit stronger or more accustomed, a better mixing with people. You know, that's probably the point. I, I went, made a real man of me. Getting a medal was significant uh, because other people who are in the services can recognise it, you see, as a special acknowledgement. It's about 70 years ago. It's a long time ago. But I thought, well, I'm 93. I'd like to leave something to know that I serve my country to the best of my ability. And I did. But don't go to war. It's a bit tough. And you mightn't come out of it. So, uh, there we are. Here I am. I'm a hundred. <laughs> My Life at War was brought to you by Uniting. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it. As Lee and I found out, everyone has a story to tell. So if there's a veteran or an older Australian in your life, take the time to listen to them or even record their stories. 
you never know what you'll find. This series wouldn't have been possible without the incredible veterans currently living in uniting residential aged care throughout New South Wales and the ACT. If you haven't already, make sure you visit uniting.org veterans. You'll find service photos of our veterans, as well as exclusive videos and much more. There's a link in the show notes. If you like this series, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and hear our veteran stories. This series was produced by Tribecast Media and was created and written by me, Lee Taylor. And me, Jefferson Spratt. Post-production by Deadset Studios, including story editing from Kelly Reardon and sound design by Bryce Halliday. Special thanks as well to David Wilson, our war historian. Thanks for listening. <laughs>